0: As we continue in this series on the little known or little, little studied books of the Bible, today we're looking at Philemon. Now I don't know—is it Philemon or is it Philemon? I've never been—I've never been officially told which uh, which syllable you put the emphasis on, but uh, I'm going to say Philemon, and I may—I may sound like a redneck, but that's the way it is. So uh, Philemon is the shortest book of all Paul's letters, and that gives me the opportunity to ask how many of y'all know why the letter, why the books of the new Testament are in the order they're in? Why, why the, why the books of the new Testament are in the order they're in. Do you know what order who, who well, I don't know who decided, but have you ever thought about the order the, the books are in and what kind of sense they make? Somebody explained this. I was probably past 40 when somebody explained this to me. So of course, You know the first four books of the Bible are the Gospels, and then you've got Acts, the history of the church. But then the letters start, and it starts with the letters of Paul. All Paul's letters are grouped together. They're put not in order of date, but in order of length, from the biggest to the shortest. Romans is the longest, Philemon is the shortest. And then you get the the other letters. You uh, You get Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that. You get one letter from James, then you get two letters from Peter, Three letters from John, the letter of Jude, and then the final book, of course, Revelation, the Apocalypse. So that's how they ordered it. They grouped letters together by length. I, I don't know who decided that, but it worked. So Philemon is the shortest of Paul's letters. It's a personal letter. It's, it's basically a letter of, of recommendation from to an old friend on behalf of a new friend. The situation is... And of course, we don't have all the details, but we can piece this together based on the context that there was a Philemon was a wealthy Christian who lived in or around Colossae, to which the letter of Colossians was written. Uh, He had been won to Christ by Paul's ministry. He had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus took something from Philemon and fled. We don't know what it was, if it was money, if it was property, or if it was just himself. That was the theft. But either way, he took something that belonged to Philemon, his master, and ran. Somehow or another, he ended up in Rome where Paul was imprisoned and went to Paul, and Paul won him to Christ. Thereafter, he wanted to serve Paul, wanted to work alongside Paul. But he also began to say to himself, you know, what I did to my master is not right. I need to make things right with him. Problem was that legally speaking, when he got back to Colossae, Philemon could do anything he wanted to him. He could have him beaten. He could have him imprisoned. He could do any number of things to him. And Onesimus had no recourse. So he was, he would, he was taking a real risk by going back to his old master. And so Paul writes this letter of recommendation as a way of softening the blow, as a way of saying, hey, take it easy on this guy. And it's a very interesting, uh, it's interesting to look at the, the way Paul argues. The other interesting thing about this book of the Bible is it doesn't read like any of the other books. It seems like a personal conversation. It feels like you're eavesdropping in a sense. And yet it's part of this canon of scripture. And there are reasons why. We'll get to those. So because it's so short, we'll read the whole thing tonight. Starting with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Note that, and it's always interesting in all Paul's letters to see how he refers to himself. Often he's the slave of Christ, but here he's the prisoner of Christ. That's his claim to fame in this sense. That's his identity. I am in prison for the sake of Jesus. Aphia, we presume, is Philemon's wife. And Archippus must be a leader in the church that meets in Philemon's home. So Archippus may be one of the elders, a pastor, we don't know. We're not told about who he is. But one thing I I thought about when I was reading this, Paul wrote this hoping that Philemon would read the letter and then would pass it along to his church. But there's every possibility that Philemon's going to read this letter and say, okay, I don't want anybody to see this. I don't want anybody to know. Paul's in prison. He may never get out. Nobody's, nobody will have to know what he said to me because I don't want to do it, so I'm just going to wad it up and throw it away. But that was the hope that he would share, at least with those two. Here's what I'm saying. He says in verse 3, "'Grace to you and peace from God our Father "'and the Lord Jesus Christ. "'I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, "'because I hear of your love and of the faith "'that you have toward the Lord Jesus "'and for all the saints.' And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You probably know this, but Paul was not a man to engage in flattery. He was not someone who just dropped compliments without meaning them. So for him to say these things about Philemon means that this must have been a truly righteous man. He says, I've derived joy and comfort from your love. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Is there a greater compliment you can give one Christian than to say you refresh the hearts of other believers? And that's what Paul says about Philemon. Yet, there's still room for this man to grow. There's still stuff left undone. That's why Paul's writing in the letter. And isn't that true of all of us? I, I think I can testify. Everybody in this room is someone who blesses me and probably blesses lots of other people. And yet, don't all of us need to grow? Don't all of us still have things that where God says, yes, I'm proud of you for this, but I still have a problem with this over here. And the key as Christians is to never forget either one of those. We've come a long way. God's brought us through so much and has has grown us and and we're not where we used to be, but we're not where we want to be yet. As long as you keep that in mind, as long as you keep both halves of that and don't get too down on yourself, but on the other hand, don't become arrogant, you're in the right place. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. When Paul says I'm bold enough in Christ to command you again you and I because we've read the letters of Paul we say oh yeah he's bold enough. Okay. We know that. He'll 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 tell it how it is. But in this case he doesn't exert his authority as an apostle. He doesn't say you will do this. Remember there's there's a moment in 1 Corinthians when he commands the Corinthians to take one of their members and deliver him over to Satan so that he'll he'll be punished and so that he'll repent. I mean, Paul is not afraid to call someone out. But here, he doesn't do that. Why? He says, for love's sake, I appeal to you. I don't think he means my love for you. I think he means because I want you to do this out of your love for Christ. Not because I made you feel guilty. Not because you're afraid that I will I will make your life miserable if you don't. I want you to do this out of love for Christ. Because you see, he's not just concerned for Onesimus. He's concerned about Onesimus. He wants Onesimus to be reconciled to his former master. He wants he wants Onesimus to be safe. He wants Onesimus to continue to grow in Christ, but he's also concerned for Philemon's soul too. That's true Christian friendship, where you say, "I want you to grow and I want you to do this for the right reasons. Now, I'm, just not, I'm not just concerned about you doing the right thing. I'm concerned about you doing it for the right reasons. He says in verse 10. This is just a master class in how to address somebody in having a difficult conversation. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So he does a couple of things there. First of all, I, I didn't even make any comment about he had earlier said, "I'm an old man and a prisoner for Christ." So in a sense, he's saying, "Listen, you know, I, I, I've got I've got the ability to play on your on your guilt if I want to. I, I've, I've got I've got some credentials here. I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. I'm an old man. You don't want to turn me down. But on the other hand, I appeal to you for my child." I, he became, I became his father while I was in prison. Paul saw people who he won to Christ as his children. Think about Timothy, his son. He called him my son in the faith. Think about when he talks in, in second, in second Corinthians about all the things that he suffered for the sake of Christ. The last thing he lists is my daily, the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is in pain and I don't feel pain. Who does not, who sins and I don't inwardly burn. That's That's the heart of a true Christian, a true disciple, a true disciple maker. Um, So, you know, this is my child. I'm concerned about him. And then he makes a joke. We don't see this because English doesn't, you know, jokes don't translate. By the way, I I have to tell you a funny story that I didn't plan to say this. But um, so I heard a story uh, from a Korean pastor. This was when I was in seminary and an American pastor had come to his church And so, of course, the Korean pastor has to serve as the translator. And I've done this once or twice where and it's hard because you have to you have to force yourself to stop after every sentence and let the translator translate. But this guy told a long, complicated joke. didn't pause, just told the whole thing and then stopped and turned to the translator. And this Korean pastor in Korean said to his congregation, very funny joke. Please laugh. <laughs> and they all just died laughing. And he said, that American pastor thought he had just killed. He thought he had done such a great job. So jokes don't translate from language to language, but the name Onesimus means useful in Greek. And so Paul is making a play on words. You used to think he was useless, but now he's useful to both of us. Now... Maybe that wasn't a ha-ha, slap-your-knee joke, but Paul was making a pun. You don't think of Paul as having a sense of humor, but he's making a pun here. Why would he do that? He's trying to lighten the tone. He's about to ask for something difficult. He's lightening the tone. I think this is very skillful of him. Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. This is Paul's way of saying, you can't be here. Yes. yes. If somebody's parking, in just hope it's parking lot. Please move your vehicle so I can park by coming your truck in there. Yes. I didn't know you worked at that. I didn't either. I mean, it's <coughs> <laughs> Sorry. You just never know what's going to happen. Sorry. Since he, he's saying, okay, so you're all the way in Colossae, I'm in prison in Rome. You can't be here to help me and I need help. I'm an old man. I'm in prison. I need people with me to help meet my needs. You can't be here. So he's meeting the needs you can't. He's doing for me what you can't do. And yet I'm sending him back to you. This isn't Paul making making Philemon feel guilty so much as it's understand the sacrifice that I'm making. This is how important this is. This, this young man has become as close to me as my very heart. He is meeting my needs at a time when I'm very lonely, and yet it's worth it to me to send them back to you. Verse 14, But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? And I'll just tell you, Paul never in this letter says, set this man free. Never once. But in what he just said, he's implying it, isn't he? He's saying, I want you to receive him back. I want you to receive him back as more than a slave, but as an equal, as a brother in Christ. That has implications, beyond just Onesimus and Philemon. Because other slaves, and by the way, as I'm about to tell you, there were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire. A lot. And so we can assume that in Colossae, where Philemon lived, there were a lot of slaves. And if Onesimus came back and Philemon didn't punish him, the other slaves would hear it. And they might think, oh, well, maybe this is the way things should be. If he set Onesimus free, that would disrupt things even more. So Paul knows that he's asking a lot from his friend. So he goes on in verse 17. He says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Paul knew how to how to make an argument, didn't he? Well, first of all, he uses business language. If we're partners in this thing, then receive him as you would receive me. Aren't we partners? Aren't we on the same team? Well, let's act like it. And if he's wronged you anyway, charge it to my account. That's a remarkable statement right there. Because if... Onesimus has stolen something from Philemon. Paul is saying, I'll pay it back. If this is still an issue, I'll pay it back. How's Paul going to pay it back? We don't know. But he's offering. He's offering to pay the debt of someone else for something he himself did not do. But then... And he, and he says, I write this with my own hand. This is one of those moments, we see it in Galatians 2 and, and some of other of Paul's letters, where Paul in, you know, takes the pen away from his secretary and writes it out himself as a way of saying, okay, this is like a legal document. I am signing this with my own hand so that you know I am good for the debt that this man leaves you with. But at the same time, he comes back to, remember, you owe me your own self. If it wasn't for me, you'd still be lost. So he makes this a personal thing too it's a business transaction but it's also a personal matter so verse 20 he says yes brother i want some benefit from you in the lord refresh my heart in christ remember he said earlier you've refreshed the hearts of the saints i want you to do that for me and all i need from you is to do what i'm asking right here is to receive my friend my son back to you as a brother and not a slave. If you'll do that, that'll be all the refreshment I need. And and you gotta ask yourself, how could anybody who's a true believer in Christ and a friend refuse the request of a man who's in prison for his faith? Paul's got some, some, some heft on his side in this, you could say. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. It's an interesting statement because, first of all, we don't know when exactly this was written, if this was Paul's first imprisonment or his second one in Rome. So we don't know if he did get out of prison and he did go back to Colossae. But Paul's confident he will be set free. And he intends to go to Colossae. And so, in a sense, this is, this gives his argument more credibility. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come see you. I, wanna, I want this all to be resolved before I get there. So prepare a guest room for me. Sounds like Paul thinks he's gonna get out soon. Verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Those are the people who are with him there in Rome. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that's the end of the letter. Now, what happened to Onesimus? Well, here's what we know. He's mentioned one other place in the Bible, and that's in the Colossian letter. Colossians 4.9, he's mentioned as being with Tychicus, Paul's friend, and bringing the letter to the Colossians. So it's reasonable to think that Philemon did set Onesimus free. And that he went back to Paul and helped carry the letter to the Colossians later, although we can't say that for sure. The fact that this letter survives is an indication that Philemon did everything that Paul asked him to do. Because again, if Philemon had no intention of obeying, he would have thrown the letter away and we never would have seen it. So the fact that we have it today means that Philemon passed it along, that he let it be read in his church, that he let it be circulated, that You know, by the time the church was gathering and figuring out which books went into the canon of Scripture and which order they'd be in, everyone knew this. Everyone knew this letter. They'd read it. They'd had it in their churches. Because, and why would he let that happen if he hadn't done what Paul asked? So we'll know for sure when we get to heaven and we bump into a guy named Onesimus and we ask him, because there probably aren't too many Onesimuses. I've actually met one uh, in Pasadena, but uh, we'll ask him. And he'll tell us, but I'm willing to bet that's exactly what happened. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. There's two, there's a couple of questions. Whenever you read uh, anything in the scriptures about slavery here, or in Colossians or in Ephesians, there's always the question, well, why why didn't Paul or the other apostles just call for slavery to be abolished? Because never in, in, in scripture does it say, okay, slaves should all be set free, slavery should be ended. And skeptics, people who want to take shots at the Bible, will point to that as evidence that the Bible approves of slavery, because it doesn't come out and abolish it. And in fact, in the South, in this part of the world, uh, in the days before the Civil War, people use that as as an argument. Hey, see, the Bible talks about how how to treat your slaves, so the Bible approves of slavery. But they're wrong. First of all, We shouldn't read our modern circumstances into the time of Paul. You need to understand, the early church had no power whatsoever in society. No power. No political power, no economic power. They were a minority in every sense of the word. So if Paul or any of the apostles would have said, okay, slavery must be abolished, it would be like me saying that humidity in the summertime needs to be abolished. I can't do that. I've got no power over that. You go. Yeah, I wish I could. I'd be the most popular preacher on earth. But uh, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't have worked. Paul's priority and the other apostles, their priority was to spread the gospel, period. They weren't going to get off into issues that wouldn't advance the cause of the gospel, but would instead distract them from the cause of the gospel. Furthermore, immediately abolishing slavery would have been a disaster in that world at that time. Scholars say that in the city of Rome alone, there were as many as 400,000 slaves. That's a third of the population, 400,000. And that's not to include all the ones in the countryside and the smaller cities. So you think about if all of a sudden all those people were set free, what happens to them? How do they survive? Most of them would would have been without any ability to care for themselves, any ability to earn a living. And many would have starved. Slavery in Rome was not like slavery here. It wasn't race-based, and some slaves, in fact, a lot of slaves, lived very good lives. There were some that were doctors. There were some that were white-collar workers, managers of households. Some of them were treated as, as members of the family. So some slaves, at least, would not have wanted to be freed. It was, it was more advantageous for them. In fact, some people sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't make, they couldn't make it in that economy on their own. On the other hand, in our country, Christian abolitionists had the power of democracy on their side. They could, they could stir up uh, an issue like slavery and say, okay, we need to elect people who, who believe in abolishing slavery. There was no option for that in, in ancient Rome. They also had a different economy in our country. You know, the Industrial Revolution had happened in the 1800s. So when slaves were set free, there was an economy that could provide jobs. It was a whole different situation. And since most abolitionists in our country were Christians, they appealed to their fellow voters on the basis of the fact that slavery was evil. And what did they use to make those appeals? The words of scripture, including Philemon. So while the Bible doesn't call for abolition, God in his wisdom sowed the seeds that led to it. God's purpose is to redeem the world. It's not it's not any political issue, slavery to abortion, whatever you want to name. Those aren't the point of the scriptures, but scripture does speak to those issues. And slavery is one of them. I, I like what F.F. Bruce says, the old Bible scholar. He wrote, the letter of Philemon brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Because you can't, you can't consistently tell people, this person who you enslave is your brother. You can't tell them that over and over again and expect them to continue enslaving people. If they start to believe that, if they start to believe that in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free for all are one in Christ Jesus, then it's not long before people start to say, I've got no right to hold this person captive. The scriptures sowed the seeds that led to the end. So the second question, why is this letter in the Bible? So different. It's very personal. It's basically a letter of recommendation. Why is it in the Bible? I know it's very interesting, but it doesn't seem, I mean, probably most of you've never heard a sermon out of it. So why is it there? Well, I think two reasons. Number one, it shows us the importance of Christian relationships. Think about it. The Roman Empire was a big place. So Paul knew he's got this new Christian Onesimus, who's his friend. He's got this old friend, uh, uh, Philemon, who's all the way in Turkey in the city of Colossae. Chances are he can keep those two men separated from each other forever. They won't ever see each other again. So he didn't have to get them back together. So what if Philemon's mad at Onesimus? They don't ever have to see each other again. But Paul said, no, it's important. These two are brothers in Christ now. We need to reconcile them. And that's different than the way we tend to think, don't we? We tend to think, oh, let's just you know, let's, let's, do the, let's do things the easy way. I'm mad at this person, so I'm not going to talk, talk to him. And all our friends just sort of help with that. Let's just, I'm not going to invite her to the party if she's coming because they don't like each other. That's all we do. We do that in families, sad to say. Now, we're going to have two Thanksgivings this year because, you know, Aunt so-and-so doesn't like, you know, Aunt so-and-so. And so we're going to have two. But that shouldn't be within the body of Christ. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it always works, but we at least should make the attempt. Paul made the attempt. He knew that these two men needed to be reconciled, and he also needed to, he needed that church to see in real life what he wrote about in in Galatians, that all are one in Christ Jesus. He needed to see that a man like Philemon would take a former slave and make him a brother, and that would be an object lesson to them all. So it makes us ask, when we read the book of Philemon, what relationships do I have in my life that are not glorifying God in their present state? What relationships do I need to take action on? People who I've just got something against and I'm just content disliking them, or they've got something against me and I'm, I just don't feel like apologizing to them because it's half their fault, at least anyway. You know, that kind of thing. Let's not settle for that because relationships within the body of Christ are important. But number two... This letter is there because it shows us how to think like Jesus. In many ways, the situation between Philemon and Onesimus was like the situation between us and God. Because like like Onesimus, we had stolen something from our master. We had sinned against our master, and we ran away from him. And like with Jesus, Paul chose to get involved, even though he didn't have to. Paul, in fact, offered to pay the price, pay the debt of someone for something he didn't do. And that's what Jesus did for us. Now, Paul didn't have to pay the debt as far as we know. Jesus did. I'm not saying that the book of Philemon is an allegory. I think it really happened. It's a a true story, but I think what, what I'm saying is that Paul in this moment was thinking like Jesus. If I have to sacrifice something to bring these two together, to bring reconciliation to them, that's what I'll do. He was acting like Jesus. So the second question you need to ask yourself whenever you read this is, what opportunity, Lord, are you giving me in the days ahead to think like you, to put myself out there, to reconcile people to you or to one another through action that I take, even if it costs me something, even if it makes my stomach churn, even if it means sacrifice of some kind, what what can, what action can I take in your name? So that's that's the letter of Philemon, that, that little bitty book that you've skimmed over so many times, and that's what I believe it's about. So let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you for tonight and for this letter. We pray, O Lord, that we would love one another like you love us. And that, Lord, we would value our relationships with the people you placed in our lives. Help us, Lord, to follow you and obey you in every way in all that we do. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.